Welcome to some very famous people you've never really heard of. Bite-sized biographies of the famous, the infamous, and the quirky in less than an hour. My name is Philip D. Gibbons, and there is more information about me, this podcast, and a bibliography at someveryfamouspeople.com. There are also photographs of many of the individuals mentioned in this podcast. At the conclusion of part two of this presentation, there will be additional suggestions concerning further information about today's subject, Ronnie Van Zant. Let's return to our story about Ronnie Van Zant. It was in late March 1975 that Skinner would sever ties to Alan Walden and turn over their management affairs to Peter Rudge, although Rudge would help negotiate a better deal with MCA and get them out from under Al Cooper contractually. The producer was called in to help record the band's third album. Produced quickly in a brief lull during the band's touring schedule, the album sold well, but other than Saturday Night Special, was thrown together in lackluster. Rudge did nothing to stop the destructive behaviors of the band, deciding that their hotel-abusing, hell-raising image was good publicity, and participating in marathon meetings that were rife with drug and alcohol abuse. Unfortunately, substance abuse had a Jekyll Hyde effect on Ronnie Van Zant that transformed him from a gregarious and thoughtful individual into a violent, unpredictable thug who attacked anyone in his proximity, including members of the Skinnerd entourage and even band members themselves. These attacks were sudden, inexplicable, and unpredictable. Van Zant twice knocked out the front teeth of Billy Powell, subsequently apologizing by offering to pay for reconstructive dental work. Ronnie even attacked Gary Rossington, slashing the guitarist's most valuable assets, his hands, with a liquor bottle, an incident precipitated by an argument over the correct pronunciation of the word schnapps. Van Zant showed no contrition over this behavior, subsequently telling Rossington, I'll do it without you. Ed King greatly respected Van Zant's songwriting ability and authenticity and thoughtfulness when sober, but recognized that alcohol released a remarkable level of anger that had deep roots in childhood and insecurity. King himself would be subjected to Ronnie's wrath in June of 1974 in a sequence of events that resulted in him leaving Skinnerd. Having been born in Glendale, California, King always felt like an outsider in an environment populated by Southerners who took regional origins very seriously. Van Zant's relationship with King had always been reasonably professional until it became totally frayed by Van Zant becoming hostile to King over a poor performance of Freebird in which King broke two guitar strings. Ronnie was partially responsible for this malfunction. He and the roadie responsible for tuning and maintaining the band's guitars were arrested after a bar brawl and did not arrive for the show in question until 10 minutes before the band was supposed to hit the stage. This was one of five arrests that Van Zant would incur during the tour. 
indicative of his ever-increasing lack of self-control and penchant for violence. King barely avoided a physical confrontation, but decided on the spot to walk out on the band. Without even a goodbye, he flew from Michigan to Jacksonville, packed up his belongings, and left town with his wife. Although he eventually regretted this move, King knew that Ronnie would never ask him back, and King would never play or speak with Van Zant again. The constant touring had also previously gotten to the band's original drummer, Bob Burns, who was sacked after erratic behavior that even Skinner found intolerable. The band soldiered on with only two guitarists, but their fourth album, Gimme Back My Bullets, reflected the band's general malaise and unhappiness. The title song itself is usually misunderstood. The bullets cited are the bullets that recording industry publications like Billboard assigned to new releases that are enjoying a rapid ascent up the sales charts. The opening lyrics of the album's title song certainly acknowledge the strain and tense atmosphere that now pervaded a once carefree group of younger musicians. Its opening stanza, Life is so strange when it's changing, yes indeed. Well, I've seen the hard times and the pressure's been on me. But I keep on working like the working man do. And I've got my act together, gonna walk all over you. Sweet talking people done ran me out of town. And I drank enough whiskey to float a battleship around. But I'm leaving this game one step ahead of you. And you will not hear me cry because I do not sing the blues. Give me back my bullets, put them back where they belong. Ain't fooling around because I had done had my fun. Ain't gonna see no more damage done. Give me back my bullets. Predictably, the album became the band's poorest selling effort, and both singles were ignored. Perhaps Peter Rudge, who considered Skinner a short-term phenomenon that would eventually burn out, was correct in encouraging the mayhem and violence that surrounded the band. Bob Burns had been replaced by a six-foot-two, 200-pound ex-Marine named Artemis Pyle, who provided even more personality to the lineup. Van Zant once commented, We keep him in a cage and feed him raw meat and only let him out when it's time to play. Ed King would eventually be replaced by the brother of backup singer Cassie Gaines. Steve Gaines was struggling to make a living with obscure Midwestern bands when Ronnie finally agreed to let him play a few songs in a mid-1976 concert appearance. Gaines was impressive and fit in neatly with the three-guitar concept and formally joined Skinner in time for their live album, One More From The Road, recorded live at Atlanta's Fox Theater in July of 1976. Uncharacteristically, he was not a heavy drinker or drug abuser. Gaines's addition, the tremendous success of Skinner's live album, and some introspection on Ronnie Van Zant's part concerning his lifestyle propelled the band into 1977 with a sense of renewal and a determination to regain the momentum they had lost with their previous studio efforts. Undoubtedly, Van Zant's outlook was shaped by the birth in September of 1976 of his first child with his wife Judy, a daughter named Melody. However, they would not back off of their demanding tour schedule, in fact plotting an ambitious worldwide effort that would have them on the road for a potential 300 days with stops across Europe and Japan. 1977 would also require a new album, and this time Van Zant was determined to produce a rebound from the two most recent mediocre efforts. He didn't have to look far for a compelling theme. In the previous months leading up to this effort, Band members had sustained serious injuries, usually involving motor vehicles and substance abuse. Billy Powell was seriously injured on a motorcycle. Alan Collins fractured his skull in a Jeep accident. 
Artemis Pyle broke his leg in a car crash mid-tour. And Alan Rossington, not to be outdone, took an under-the-influence Labor Day jaunt that resulted in him hitting a telephone pole, a large tree, and ultimately coming to rest after hitting a suburban home. This incident would be fodder for the new album, documented in the Skinnerd song, That Smell, with its opening lines, Whiskey bottles and brand new cars, Oak Tree, You're In My Way. Ronnie would consciously attempt to assemble a top 40 hit with What's Your Name, although he cringed at the idea. Six other songs rounded out a strong effort, and much of the rest of 1977 would be devoted to touring in support of this album, scheduled for official release in October. Entitled Street Survivors, all of the members of the band were featured on the cover, surrounded ominously by flames, the mood lightened by Ronnie Van Zant clearly wearing a Neil Young t-shirt. Unlike other performers of the era, who relied on laser light shows, theatrics, and various artificial props, Skinnerd merely presented themselves, their instruments, and their music, Ronnie wearing a t-shirt and jeans, and usually sporting a rattlesnake-skin festooned Texas high roller hat. Ronnie also always took to the stage barefoot, a trademark move he incorporated to indicate that he hadn't drifted from his childhood roots. After returning from the international leg of the tour in late April, Skinner began the American dates that were scheduled throughout the rest of 1977. Such an ambitious plan called for travel by aircraft, and typical of bands of their stature, Leonard Skinner would charter their own plane. Unfortunately, they would not get to fly in something like the Starship, a state-of-the-art reconfigured Boeing 720 that resembled a hotel penthouse. Instead, Peter Rudge would lease a Convair CV240, a 30-year-old prop plane that was worn, cramped, and not up to what the band felt was its stature as a major rock act. Known to be tight with a buck, Rudge had gotten the lease for a rock-bottom price of $15,000, a fraction of what something like the Starship would cost. Skinner's option for commercial air travel were also limited after a notorious incident in which Ronnie attempted to expel a roadie out of a traditional jet aircraft while the plane was thousands of feet in the air. Regardless, band members were not happy, especially when Rudge disdained the airplane and began to show up to concert locations via first-class commercial airliners. Despite these disagreements, Skinner's marathon tour schedule lurched forward across America, live shows containing new material, prompting street survivors to ship gold upon its release on October 17, 1977. But happiness about the band's newly successful momentum was dampened by an incident after the band performed in Lakeland, Florida on October 18th. Aboard their prop plane for a flight to their next date at Greenville, South Carolina, Gene Odom, part of the band's road management team, recalls that upon takeoff, the plane's right engine exploded with a boom that was so loud that he was amazed it was still functional and that the plane was able to take off. While airborne, several passengers observed a 10-foot plume of flame burning from the same engine for an extended period of time. Although the flight would safely make it to Greenville, this harrowing incident prompted several of the entourage to proclaim that they would not fly on the Convair again. The band performed in Greenville on October 19th and then repaired to a local hotel, confusion still surrounding their transportation. Early on the morning of October 20th, 1977, Skinner Road Manager Dean Kilpatrick was already at the airport demanding answers from the plane's two pilots, Walter McCreary and William Gray. Both pilots were relatively nonchalant, 
explaining that the plane could fly adequately on one engine, even if the right engine failed entirely, and assured Kilpatrick that a mechanic from the leasing company would meet them in Baton Rouge, the next stop on the tour. Although the Skinner entourage had good reason to be concerned, Ronnie Van Zant was adamant that the band should board the plane. Notwithstanding his fatalistic attitudes, Van Zant was aware that the band's next show would be performed at the LSU Assembly Center on the campus of Louisiana State University, a state-of-the-art 14,000-seat venue that would be a highlight of the tour. Any change in transportation would probably prompt a cancellation of this concert, which Van Zant reminded everyone was not for a bunch of Yankees in New York or Chicago, but in a Deep South location in front of their most loyal fans. Lost in all of the discussion was the fact that the show was not even scheduled until October 21st, a full day away, but Ronnie remained adamant. Be at the show or be fired was his last word on the topic. Reluctantly, the 24 passengers boarded the plane, the pilots working on the uncooperative engine throughout the day, necessitating a takeoff time of approximately 5 p.m. Despite the trepidation on board, the plane's takeoff was uneventful, and the mood on the plane began to lighten as hours passed by without incident. The flight started to become a kind of celebration, Ronnie having relented to the extent that when the plane reached Baton Rouge, it was agreed that it would be ditched for a much more suitable Learjet. This was also a last straw moment concerning Peter Rudge. Ronnie, initially in awe of someone who had worked with rock royalty, was now intent on getting rid of Rudge as quickly as practical. Some band members broke out the traditional poker game in the rear of the aircraft, and the mood remained light. However, because the plane's insurance riders strictly forbade drugs or alcohol based on the band's reputation, the entourage remained sober. The last alcohol consumed by anyone at the band's hotel bar hours earlier. Suddenly, the situation changed completely. Mark Frank, a 24-year-old roadie, later recalled the moments leading up to the initial engine trouble. Looking out of a plane window, he noticed what appeared to be jet fuel leaking profusely out of the plane's right engine. Shortly afterward, the right engine started to sputter, and the plane began to violently vibrate like an automobile running out of gas. By then, the pilots realized that they were in serious trouble and radioed their air traffic control center in Houston, asking for the location of the nearest airport. Although the flight was scheduled to last only two and a half hours, it was now almost three hours into the flight and the plane was still over Mississippi, 60 miles from Baton Rouge. The pilots attempted to turn the plane around in an attempt to reach an airport they had already passed at Macomb, Mississippi. Frank, recalling the plane's wings positioned almost perpendicular to the ground in a terrifying attempt to turn the craft around. The plane eventually leveled out, but suddenly the left engine came to a stop. The plane now completely out of fuel and without power, a definite problem at 9,000 feet. Twice, passengers were told that the plane would crash and to strap themselves in. Mark Frank says that the last few minutes of the flight were quiet except for the sound of the wind whistling over the fuselage and the soft voices of passengers praying for their lives. Ronnie Van Zant had been sleeping in the rear of the plane, possibly under the influence of sedatives administered by Gene Odom. Although Van Zant was outspoken about everyone flying that day, he did not like to fly and resorted to trying to sleep through any air travel. He barely strapped himself in in time in the front part of the plane, in retrospect, a bad move. The sun had just set, 
and in the twilight, Frank noticed dense trees, the plane gliding to an altitude of 500 feet. In the cockpit, the pilots were desperately searching for some road or open space that would provide the safest crash landing alternative. They never found it. The plane descended at approximately 90 miles per hour and plunged into a wooded, snake-infested swamp a few miles from the tiny town of Gillsburg, Mississippi. The aircraft first scraped the treetops, and then one of the wings was sheared off by a thick, 80-foot-tall pine tree. The front portion of the plane was then separated by another tree and flipped completely over. The pilots killed instantly on impact. The interior of the plane came apart as seat belts failed and seats were uprooted from the fuselage, anything not strapped down now becoming a potentially fatal missile. Pieces of aircraft and passengers, some injured fatally, were strewn all over the crash site, most too severely injured to move. Only three of the plane's occupants were even ambulatory. Artemis Pyle, Mark Frank, and another roadie, Steve Lawler, managed to crawl out of a section of the tail of the plane and begin the process of seeking help. Pyle, while the plane was going down, had the foresight to get his bearings and looked out of the plane's windows, attempting to locate any local residences. It would take all three men approximately 45 minutes to wade through a creek and stumble onto the nearby property of Johnny Moat, a dairy farmer in his early 20s who had heard the crash and described it as sounding like an auto accident on a gravel road. Spotting three blood-soaked adult males emerging from the woods, Moat initially thought they might be escaped prisoners from a nearby reformatory and fired a warning shot at them with a shotgun. When he heard the three yelling plane crash, he suddenly realized that they were connected to the earlier sounds from beyond the tree line. Although still wary of the strange-looking long-haired men he thought also might be drug smugglers operating a private plane, he allowed them to call 911 from his trailer, and Mark and Steve were then taken to a nearby hospital. Pyle returned to the woods with locals who, through the local volunteer department and Civil Air Patrol, had heard of the plane crash. Although the crash killed or seriously injured 26 people, there were some fortunate aspects of the incident that prevented even more fatalities. Eventually, it would be determined that the plane contained approximately a quart of fuel, which precluded any sort of fire or explosion, which would have killed many of the immobilized injured who were also buried in debris. An aircraft in the vicinity notified Houston Air Traffic Control of the crash at approximately 6.55 Central Time, only minutes after the conveyor hit the ground. Thirty minutes later, an airborne Coast Guard helicopter based in New Orleans was able to reach the scene and circle the site, illuminating it for dozens of volunteer fire department and medical personnel who made their way to the remote area, fording the creek in the process. Eventually, the injured and dead were removed to the medical center in Macomb, the largest nearby hospital. There, a morgue was also set up for the six individuals killed in the crash. The pilots, Walter McCreary and John Gray, Dean Kilpatrick, guitarist Steve Gaines, his sister backup singer Cassie Gaines, and Ronnie Van Zant. Although all of the members of the band were injured, some critically, only Gaines and Van Zant were the Skinnered members who were killed. While the adage that it was best to be in the rear of a plane in the event of a crash seemed to hold up, there was little rhyme or reason as to who lived and who died. Gary Rossington and sound man Kevin Elson were sitting in the front portion of the conveyor in a row right next to Steve Gaines, Van Zant, and Kilpatrick. Both were seriously injured with numerous broken limbs, but they both survived and eventually made a full recovery. 
Unlike the other fatalities, Ronnie Van Zant was not horribly disfigured. In fact, to dispel rumors that he was decapitated, his wife would eventually release his autopsy that indicated that his cause of death was from an unidentified projectile that caused a bruise on his forehead the size of a quarter. While he did suffer some fractures to his lower extremities, Van Zant was otherwise unscathed, prompting those who viewed his body to observe that it appeared as if he were merely asleep. Ronnie Van Zant died 87 days short of his 30th birthday, his constant prophecy now a grim reality. While an extensive National Transportation Safety Board analysis determined that the crash was caused by a complete exhaustion of fuel, how this condition occurred has never been explained. Whether the pilots set the fuel consumption at too rich a mixture, whether they mistakenly dumped fuel once problems set in with the right engine, or whether the airplane never received the proper amount of fuel to begin with, have all been suggested as possible explanations for this situation. Only Billy Powell would be well enough to attend the funerals of Van Zant and Gaines, the other band members still in the hospital in Mississippi, unaware that Ronnie was dead, lest the situation hamper their recovery. Within days, the cover of Street Survivors would be altered to remove the flame design and replace it with a simple black background. If the successful emergence of Leonard Skinner from humble beginnings and its immense popularity could only be viewed as another example of the American dream, the aftermath of the crash and the subsequent fate of the remaining members of the band would have to be perceived as a nightmare. Tragedy, premature death, and legal disputes stalked all concern for years, with most of the survivors subsequently dying in middle age. For two years, band members did not even perform, their lives mired in apathy brought on by trauma and substance abuse. Alan Collins's wife, Kathy, died of a cerebral hemorrhage during a miscarriage of the couple's third child in 1980. Collins would be paralyzed in a 1986 car accident that killed his girlfriend. He would never play a musical instrument again and died of paralysis-related pneumonia in 1990. Although remnants of the band, including Ed King, reformed to immense profit and popularity in 1987, the use of Ronnie Van Zant's younger brother Johnny as lead vocalist and attempts to present mediocre new material caused criticism of this reformation as nothing more than a cash-generating exploitation. In 2001, bass player Leon Wilkerson died of liver disease at age 49, Billy Powell at age 56 in 2009 of a heart attack. Original drummer Bob Burns was killed in a car wreck in 2015. Ed King died of cancer in the summer of 2018. Additionally, litigation between Ronnie's widow, Judy Van Zant, surviving members Gary Rossington and Artemis Pyle has been so relentless and complicated that some corporate entities of the band were able to stop an already completed Hollywood film on the Skinnerd crash based on Pyle's involvement. In 1993, Pyle himself would be subjected to a legal nightmare involving child molestation of two young daughters of his ex-wife, ultimately having to negotiate a plea bargain that resulted in probation and his perpetual registration as a sex offender. Pyle claims that this plea was the result of his destitution and a desire to avoid a trial. Both of the children involved, now adults, currently claim that the charges were fabricated in a dispute over Pyle's assets. Unfortunately, Pyle's plea ended any potential professional relationship with Leonard Skinner. Gary Rossington still fronts a version of Leonard Skinner that tours with lead vocalist Johnny Van Zant, and this iteration has announced a 2018 farewell tour. Artemis Pyle remains active in various bands, grinding out a living in much less high-profile venues. Even Hellhouse eventually burnt to the ground, the only remnant left a power pole that had delivered electricity to the band's remote compound. 
Eventually, the 90-acre site was developed as a suburban subdivision known as Edgewater Landing. Some of the streets in the gated community go by names associated with the band, including Freebird Loop. Unfortunately, even in death, Ronnie Van Zandt has been subjected to chaos and turbulence. On June 29, 2000, at the Jacksonville Memory Garden Cemetery, vandals broke into the marble monuments containing the remains of Van Zandt and Steve Gaines. Although this act was initially described as a prank to confirm the urban legend that Van Zandt was buried in a Neil Young t-shirt, it was actually a depraved and destructive endeavor that left Van Zandt apparently unopened coffin completely outside of its resting place. Additionally, the plastic bag containing Steve Gaines's cremated remains was punctured with about 1% of its contents removed. No arrests were ever made following the incident, and Van Zandt was reburied in what was initially a secret location. This was eventually revealed to be next to his parents' graves at the Riverside Memorial Park in Jacksonville, today denoted by a small marker. However, this time, family and cemetery officials took extreme precautions, entombing Ronnie in a deep concrete vault that would be immovable without an excavator that could lift several tons. Besides a Neil Young t-shirt, it is also rumored that Ronnie Van Zant was buried with his favorite cane fishing pole and snakeskin hat, although it is ironic that this ultimate free bird will also spend eternity encased in cement. Thank you for listening to part two of this podcast about Ronnie Van Zant. Much of the information for this podcast came from Whiskey Bottles and Brand New Cars, The Fast Life and Sudden Death of Leonard Skinnerd by Mark Rabowski, and Leonard Skinnerd Remembering the Freebirds of Southern Rock by Gene Odom. There are also additional photographs and bibliographical and musical information at someveryfamouspeople.com. If you have enjoyed this presentation, please like us at our Facebook page, Some Very Famous People, and follow us on Twitter at Philip D. Gibbons. Also rate us on iTunes. And if you have the time, leave a brief review. A link is provided at the website.